Acts 2, 1 through 21. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound from heaven, like a howling of the fierce wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear them speaking in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the regions of Libya bordering Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jew and converts to Judaism. Cretans, Arabs, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own language. They were all surprised and bewildered. Some asked, what does this mean? Others jeered at them saying, they're full of new wine. Peter stood with the other 11 apostles. He raised his voice and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem, know this, listen carefully to my words. These people aren't drunk as you suspect. After all, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Rather, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions. Your elders will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and cloud of smoke. The sun will be changed into darkness and the moon will be changed into blood before the great and spectacular day of the Lord comes. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks, Castle Dines. Um, if you have a Bible this morning, I'd invite you to turn to Acts 2, the text we just read. Obviously, the text for this Pentecost Sunday. But I'd like to partner that with the Old Testament text for today in Ezekiel, Ezekiel the 37th chapter. So if you would turn with me to Ezekiel 37. And as you find it, and if you're able, I'd invite you to stand this morning in honor of the Lord's word. Ezekiel 37 verses 1 through 14. The Lord's power overcame me, and while I was in the Lord's spirit, he led me out and set me down in the middle of a certain valley. It was full of bones. He led me through them all around, and I saw that there were a great many of them on the valley floor, and they were very dry. He asked me, human one, can these bones live again? I said, Lord God, only you know. He said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the Lord's word. The Lord God proclaims to these bones, I'm about to put breath in you and you will live again. 
I will put sinews on you, place flesh on you, and cover you with skin. And when I put breath in you and you come to life, you will know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. I prophesied just as I was commanded. There was a great noise as I was prophesying. There, then a great quaking, and the bones came together, bone by bone, and When I looked, suddenly there were sinews on them, and the flesh appeared, and then they were covered over with skin, but there was still no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, human one, say to the breath, the Lord God proclaims, come from the four winds, breath, breathe into these dead bodies and let them live. I prophesied just as he commanded me. And when the breath entered them, they came to life and stood on their feet, an extraordinarily large company. He said to me, human one, these bones are the entire house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely finished. So now prophesy and say to them, The Lord God proclaims, I'm opening your graves. I will raise you up from your graves, my people, and I will bring you to Israel's fertile land. You will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, my people. I will put my breath in you and you will live. I will plant you on your fertile land and you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. For this is what the Lord says. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Ancient folks were kind of fascinated by by wind, which which you understand. The wind can be pretty scary at times. Um, I remember a couple of times being really pretty frightened of the wind. Um... Several times, actually, when we lived in Oklahoma. Um, When you live in Oklahoma, tornadoes come through. We call it Thursday there. Uh, They just come through. But I remember, in particular, just a couple of days before Jonah was born, being huddled together in Aunt Loretta's cellar, all the family there, um, just praying uh, that the winds would pass by. A couple of times, huddled in the bathtub, Debbie praying, prophesying to the wind, go away. Um, It's always challenging because you were there fearful and knowing that there's in all likelihood you would walk out and just pray that that your home, your place had not been damaged, but knowing full well that you'd probably enter into the lives of those who had lost. Um, Almost 10 years ago, in fact, it was uh, December the 1st, uh, 2011, it was actually November 30th, it was a Wednesday night, uh, I was pastoring in Pasadena, and uh, the winds came howling up. Uh, the Santa Anas, as they can from time to time, just came over the San Gabriel Mountains and, was, and were blowing furiously, about 80 miles per hour. We were having, what I remember, we were having Advent service. It was the first Wednesday of Advent, and we were gathered together having a kind of Advent service when somebody came charging in and said, Pastor, I'm sorry, but everyone has to go home. Um, the wind had really begun to pick up, and a tree had blown over and had fallen on a car in the parking lot. Thankfully, nobody was hurt and nobody was in it, but there were trees falling down, and their wind was blowing. 
And so I, we sent everybody home, and, you know, I was kind of the last person to leave campus. I just remember praying all the way home as palm fronds are flying off trees and just everything is whipping around. I just kept saying, oh, God, if you'll just get me home, I'll go to Nampa, Idaho, wherever you want, anywhere you want to send me, oh, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Um, some of you know, I think I've told the story, that night the wind blew so hard that it that it picked up the roof off of Pasadena First Church. And uh, Pasadena First Church's roof is kind of shaped like a toaster, if you will, and it has uh, these long metal sheets that, that kind of form the roof. And those got picked up, and they turned into, like, helicopter propellers. And they found pieces of the roof a mile or two down the hill. Um, but those, those pieces got picked up, and then they just kind of circled in the, uh, out in the, on the patio and the next morning, December 1st, when Scott Anderson, my executive pastor, and I showed up, it just looked like a war had taken place. And there were, many of the windows were smashed, but there were just pieces of metal wrapped in all the trees and just lying all over the courtyard. And I don't know if you're a fan of the movie Tommy Boy, but there's this great scene where the deer wakes up in the backseat of the car and ruins the car. And Tommy Boy goes, that was awesome. But I just remember Scott and I were walking around the, the patio, just totally silent, just floored at all this devastation. I turned and looked at him and goes, and I said, this is awesome. Anyway, but uh, it was terrifying, right? Like the winds can be terrifying. And I can only imagine where, that's 20, 20th, 21st century life where we have buildings that are built to sustain those kinds of winds. I can't imagine ancient life, nomadic life, herding sheep, living in tents, having no ability to know when wind is coming, Right? And suddenly it would just come, and I can't imagine living in deserts where the sand would start to blow and everything would be devastated. And so you can imagine that, that for the ancient world, wind is about power. It's about, it's about forces that are way beyond our ability to control and, and movements of force. Of course, the ancient people are also fascinated with the way that breath or wind is used in speech, um, that we're able to kind of speak things into existence. Um, Caleb uh, got to officiate his first wedding yesterday, which is kind of fun, but it reminded me of my first wedding, which was a bit of a disaster. Um, I, I married this couple outside. I was pretty young, and, uh, and I got to that part. We got to the vows, and they had decided to write vows for each other, and they were pretty sappy. And uh, he pulled his vows out of his pocket, and he just read these mushy, awful vows. I mean, just mushy, mushy. And she just starts tearing up, and she goes, oh, so beautiful. I love you so much. And she throws her arms around him, and they start kissing with no sign of stopping anytime soon, right? Like, they're just. And uh, so much so the congregation is beginning to giggle a little bit. And finally, I didn't know what to do. So I just put my arms and hands in between them, pulled them apart. And said, we're going to get to that part. <laughs> but, uh, but when you're doing a wedding, there's this cool part towards the end of the ceremony where you get to say this. But a power, power, but a power invested in me by the church of the Nazarene and the great state of Idaho, I pronounce that you are husband and wife in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know that you're not very excited about that, but every time I get to that part, I feel like, that's powerful, man. 
Like there is something that did not exist prior to that moment. They were just people in love with each other who decided to throw a party and hope we brought gifts. But in that moment, the power invested in me by the Church of the Nazarene in the state of Idaho, I get to pronounce something totally new in the world. They are husband and wife. Now, follow me here. The planets didn't realign. It may have felt like they did, but they didn't. Stars didn't fall from the heavens. But here's the reality. Something new happened because the words husband and wife were spoken in that moment, pronounced upon them. I mean this. Like something new is formed there. I mean, they can get out of it, but it takes work now because I have pronounced it, right? Pronounced it. And the ancient people are fascinated with the fact that our language, when we speak, it creates realities. Not to get too philosophical with you, but honestly, I know this church has building and stuff, and, and we own property and stuff, but even all of that's rooted in language. We are a church because somebody one day said, we should, we should char- start a college church. And even the fact that we own this land is rooted in words in somebody's file desk drawer somewhere in the city, right? Like it's all in words that are creating new realities. The university's existence is largely in words. We call it a university, and we call people professors and administrators and staff members and students. But all of that is wrapped in language that is creating a whole reality that we live into. You with me? And so they're fascinated by the power of wind, but they're fascinated by the power of speech. But they're also fascinated with the power of breath. Um, There's that great moment when a mother gives birth and, and that baby breathes for the very first time. And you have that moment, and there's always that moment of anxious expectation where you're in the room waiting, come on, breathe. And the baby takes that first breath and then usually exhales this way. And then you're not so excited about it after that. But but that first breath that brings life to that child. And then fascinated, so many of you have probably been there when someone breathes their last. And breath is gone. And just a body remains. The reason I bring that up is because in the Old Testament, there's kind of one word that embodies all of those fascinations. It's the Hebrew word ruach. And you have to kind of spit when you say it. It's the ruach, R-U-A-C-H, the ruach of God, the breath of God. And if you've been at this church for a little while, you know where this is going. When we open the very first book of the Bible, the ruach of God is everywhere there in those three ways. For in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was tohu and bohu, formless and void. Darkness covered the face of this chaos. Darkness covered the face of this deep, but here it is. The ruach, the the powerful wind of God sweeps across the face of the waters. And what we see is the ruach of God is able to blow those waters into places that begin to bring form to the formlessness. And so it's the powerful wind of God that begins to separate light and dark and sea and sky and separate dry land out. It's it's the power of God against the forces of chaos, the breath of God that breathes that kind of life. 
But then the text says, and then God said, right? Let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. So now God is creating, but he's creating through speech acts, through speaking things into existence. And then at the crown of creation, God creates a human out of the dust. And here's the Ruach again. The rock that breathes life into Adam and into Eve. Every breath they take is the gentle gift of the Ruach of God. Are you with me? And so creation is this act of breath. It's this act of Ruach. It's this act of power, but it's also this act of speaking. It's this act of life-giving. So this morning, as we think about both Luke and Acts, I want to think a bit about, traditionally, we believe that the gospel writer Luke also wrote the second book, Acts. And as we study them, one of the interesting things about these two books is, in some ways, they are kind of mirrors of each other in form. And so I want to think with you just a little bit about the form of that. That in many ways, Luke is a book about the father sending the Son into the redemptive work of God in the world. The book of Acts is about the Son sending the church, the body of Christ, into the world to participate in the redemptive work of God in the world. But in both cases, the Father sending the Son and then the Son sending the church, in both cases, they are not acts of will or acts of determination or acts where we, as I love to say, gritted our teeth and worked hard. They are acts of the Spirit, the breath of God. Luke is fascinated with the breath of God. In fact, the Spirit of God shows up 17 times in the Gospel of Luke, and then he really goes for it in Acts 57 times. The Spirit of God shows up in the book of Acts. Let me think with you a little bit about Luke. So 17 times the Spirit shows up in the Gospel of Luke, but the first seven of those 17 times shows up in the first two chapters of Luke. And in that, essentially, um, the Spirit of God comes and empowers six different people to do different things. The Spirit of God empowers John the Baptist while he's still in Elizabeth's womb. The Spirit of God conceives and brings new life into the Virgin Mary. The Spirit of God gives power to the old Elizabeth to be able to give birth, but also empowers her to be able to, to speak and sing and pray. It's the Spirit of God that empowers ultimately John the Baptist's father, the old priest, Zechariah, to finally get out of his muteness and begin to speak and praise. It's the power of God on the devout Simeon to see clearly when Christ is brought to the temple that God is at work in the world. A couple of chapters later, it's the Spirit of God in the ministry of Jesus hovering over the face of the baptism waters that not only proclaims the truth about who Jesus is, but empowers Jesus to be the instrument of the kingdom of God in the world. As we think about Luke and the way that Luke thinks about the Spirit, first of all, I, I want to think about the, 
the way that that power operates. Again, if we go back to the Old Testament, the people of God are fascinated with the power of this wind. But it's interesting the way by the time we get to the gospel and to Acts, that this power is not so much thought of as a power that overwhelms. It is a power, though, a kind of gentle power that begins to bring new life. It's a power of conception, of conceiving. It's gentle, intimate, transformative, life-giving takes otherwise dead or inactive realities and brings them to life. Recently, I returned to some reading of Eugene Peterson's, and, and I came across, across this quote a couple of weeks ago. I love this. Peterson writes, the births themselves, he's talking about the births of John the Baptist and Jesus in, in Luke, the births themselves are completely natural. A nine-month pregnancy preceded each birth. The babies born from these unlikely wombs, barren and virginal, had normal infancies. They were weaned from the breast, gradually acquired the ability to eat solid food, one day rolled over and started to crawl, were soon wailing, then running, made nonsense babbling sounds that overnight turned into the words and then quite astonishingly, astonishingly into sentences. The Holy Spirit, however miraculous in the conception of life itself, doesn't seem to shortcut or skip anything that is human. Let me say that again, because it's really good. The Holy Spirit, however miraculous in the conception of life itself, doesn't seem to shortcut or skip anything that is human. There is nothing in a Holy Spirit-conceived life that exempts that life from the common lot of humanity. In other words, what Peterson is saying is the Spirit of God is at work, but in a gentle life-giving way that doesn't forego the realities of our existence, but in its gentleness and beauty transforms the reality of our existence. But you'll notice in Luke, not only does the Spirit bring new life and ability, but the Spirit of God begins to operate in speech acts. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but one of the interesting things about the Gospel of Luke is it's almost like um, Luke is almost writing a musical for us. And that things happen, and then people sing. Um, and we have these wonderful songs, especially in the first parts of Luke. So much so that they have come to us as kind of liturgical prayers, and we use them often in liturgical services. So that the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, but then Mary sings what we now call the Magnificat, which begins, my soul magnifies the Lord. And Zechariah is empowered by the Spirit, but he begins, begins to speak or sing the Benedictus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The angels show up and sing the Gloria. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill to men. And Simeon sees infant Jesus coming to the temple and begins to sing what we call the Nunc Dimittis. Now you are dismissing your servant in peace, he sings. He may have wrapped it. I don't know, but he's saying, you know, he's saying it. It's for the Hamilton fans. Um, but what I want you to see is it gives new birth in Luke, but it also then begins to form new speech acts. Mary begins to sing and speak about the newness that this one that she carries and has birthed will bring into the world. Simeon. 
Zechariah, the angels sing, speak a new reality, peace on earth, goodwill to all people. But not only does it operate in speech act, now the spirit empowered Jesus goes into the world and brings down all of those places of division and begins to reconcile those who are at the margins and speaks new realities and hope and healing into the lives of people. And then ultimately, when we get to the end of the book of Luke, Jesus is put on trial, first with religious authorities, then with Roman authorities. But in each of those moments, the Spirit of God empowers Jesus in the time of trial to be a witness to the new creation, even though those powers don't really care much about him, don't understand him, don't really recognize who Jesus is. He is able, by the power of the Spirit, to be a faithful witness to this new creation reality in the midst of those trials, and ultimately in crucifixion and in the power of resurrection, that Spirit it brings new creation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You with me? So it conceives new life. It brings speech acts. It tears down walls and brings people through trial. So if you have your Bible, now to Acts. We're finally getting to the sermon now. Just kidding. When we get to Acts, so many times scholars think there's a kind of mirrored way. Again, Luke is about the Father sending the Son into the world. Now it is about Jesus sending the church into the world. But it begins in the first couple of chapters of Acts, if you will, with a kind of conception. A new birth. A people like Elizabeth or Mary, incapable of doing what they've been called to, huddled together in a room in fear, not knowing what the future holds, but the gentle power of the Ruach, the wind of God, fills that upper room and empowers them and the flames are signs of transformation and holiness and healing. But that empowerment happens and brings new life and out of this moment, this people called the church is birthed into the world. And the craziest thing happens. They're now not only birthed or launched into the world, but now new speech acts begin to occur. And so Peter goes out and he begins to proclaim the sermon that Luke records for us. And as I've said to you before, I think sometimes we get confused about Pentecost. They begin to speak in other languages, but the miracle at Pentecost is not so much that Peter is saying things that he doesn't understand, but thank goodness, the Parthians or the Medes or the Eliamites or the people from Mesopotamia who are there in Jerusalem, that they, they, Peter doesn't know he's speaking Mesopotamian, but the Mesopotamians are like, whoa, he's speaking Mesopotamian. It appears that the miracle, given Luke's recording of the sermon, is that Peter's proclaiming in Arabic or in Aramaic, proclaiming in Aramaic the, the sermon, the reality of the gospel but as Peter is proclaiming Aramaic, all the Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians are hearing the message in their own language. So it's a message, it's a miracle of speech, but it's also a miracle of hearing. As we thought about before, it's this amazing moment where the Tower of Babel gets reversed, where the people at Babel had unity, but in uniformity, everybody speaks the same language. But now there's unity, but now in the Spirit as a new reality of church is spoken into the world and those speech acts begin to bring unity to the body. If I can take 
a kind of tangent here. So you know that parts of the church have got, kind of gotten caught up in this idea. And we can some other time talk about some of that. But I do think this, this reality of the Spirit creating speech acts is why the Apostle Paul and others will oftentimes, I mean, notice this in your devotional life. When you get to the epistles, notice how many times the epistle writer says something like this. Whatever is good and gentle and worthy of praise, think about these things. Talk about those things. James, <laughs> James can go on and on about how bad is the tongue. Come on, people. Am I right? The tongue is like, oh, you know, like I love James' vision. The tongue is just out of control. We, and the tongue can start forest fires, James says. But typical of somebody who understands speech acts, but the tongue can also give life. And so this is so important in the church. Think about how many of us carry scars because somewhere in our family of origin or in a community of care, and, and sadly and confessionally, so often in the church, the negative forest fire starting words of reality that have been spoken into our life and now have shaped our imagination and caused us to sense that we are unlovable by God, we're somehow unworthy or not good, That language has spoken realities into our existence. And so those empowered by the Spirit, so often then the language is not criticism or backbiting or negativity or that which divides the body, but that which gives life and encouragement and blessing. That speaks hope and a future and goodness into the lives of people. By the way, a community that does that to each other is no less a miracle than people who speak weird languages, especially today. But the Spirit moves in these speech acts. And then you need to listen faster. But the Spirit breaks down walls and barriers. So these speech acts then begin to empower a church to go out and no longer see themselves as Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, but all one in Christ Jesus. And so Peter in his sermon can even reference Joel to say, this is how we knew the Ruach would work. The boundaries that we've had, especially those between sons and daughters, male and female, that would be broken down. My servants, both men and women, will prophesy. By the way, just on a sidelight, it's really this text that is primarily the reason why the Church of the Nazarene has ordained women all throughout our history. It's because the Spirit of God breaks down those boundaries and empowers us to embody something that too often is divided. But it's also this imagination of goodness that so often separates young and old. Your old men will have visions. Your young men will dream dreams. Like, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, and now that will mean Ethiopian eunuchs get in, and Cornelius, and centurions, and it's crazy what the Spirit's out there doing, bringing down the dividing walls. And if you're with me, the Gospel of Luke, then the Spirit empowers Jesus to face, face trials, 
as a witness to the new creation. Let me show you something so cool. If you have your Bible open, go to the very last verse of the book of Acts. Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. This is how Acts ends. Paul is on trial, and he's captive in Rome. But it says this, Paul lived in his own rented quarters for two full years and welcomed everyone who came to see him. And I really think you should underline this next part of the sentence. Unhindered and with complete confidence, he continued to preach God's kingdom and to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. You aren't very excited about that. That is so cool. Now, here's the church embodied in the Apostle Paul facing trials, ultimately death. In the same location in which Jesus faced death. But Luke is letting us know on the way out of Acts, even though Paul faced trials, the gospel was unhindered and the Spirit empowered Paul to proclaim the good news even in the face of trial and death. Oh. The breath gives new life. The breath creates speech acts that bring goodness and wholeness. The breath gives us life. Let me talk about Ezekiel for about two minutes. So I love that Ezekiel 37 is put with these texts today. So if you've listened well, there are three major movements then for Luke of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. At creation, at the birth of Jesus, and at the birth of the church. And that's really cool. I mean, and we should know that. You should know that well. The Spirit's act in creation. The Spirit's act in the birth of Jesus and the empowerment of his ministry. And the birth of the church and the empowerment of the church to do the work of God in the world. But what about all those kind of in-between times? So I love this. Here's Ezekiel. The Daily Office has been in Ezekiel the last several days. And if you ever read Ezekiel, I just need to warn you, it is depressing. Poor Ezekiel comes on the scene at a time when Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes he and others into exile, into Babylon, and a decade later goes and gets the rest of them and destroys Jerusalem. Ezekiel is empowered to tell the truth. And the truth in Ezekiel's day is things are bad, not good. Not only is the city deserted, but Ezekiel has seen the very glorious presence of God itself leave the temple. Yahweh has left the building. And so in chapter 37, God takes Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones. Don't miss, it's an image not just of dryness, of very dryness, but it's an image of violence. An army that has been destroyed, so much so that the bones are scattered around, limb from limb, bodies left in the desert to rot. What do you see, Ezekiel? I see a valley of bones, and they are very dry. There is no hope, no life no future. Israel's destiny has been cut off like a stump of a tree. 
But Ezekiel, the breath of God comes and empowers Ezekiel to imagine something different. The bones come together, flesh and skin cover, but there's still no life. And so Ezekiel prophesies a speech act he's empowered to do, to speak to the to the Ruach to come, to breathe life, to, to bring new life, to bring hope and a future to the people of Israel who have no hope and have no future. And as he prophesies, the wind comes and the bodies live. And, and Ezekiel is that reminder to us today that in this powerful movement of creation and Christ and the church, there are still moments for us that feel like exile. That feel like dry bones. That feel like 15 months of isolation. That feel like being in leadership and not the best time for the church in America. That feel like for some of you, devastation of relationships and brokenness and family turmoil. And what do you see today? Tell the truth. A valley, and it's very dry. I want you to notice in Ezekiel 37. Here is the only responsibility Ezekiel has. To trust that the wind gets the last word. Oh, the earth shakes and the bones come back together. My guess is Ezekiel may have gotten in on that too. Because the knee bones connected to the thigh bone and the thigh bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, there's work we can do. But there's not work that we can do, and this is so humbling, especially in this day, in the hope to revitalize this people called church in this day. There is work we can do, but no work that we can do that ultimately gives life back to the dry bones of Israel. That is something only God can do. It is like we can be like Mary and make ourselves available and open to the work of God. But then like Ezekiel, we can cry out to the Spirit, come Holy Spirit, we need you. Come sweet Spirit, we pray. Come in thy strength and thy power. I love this line. Come in thine own gentle way. And so this morning, if you feel like you live in a valley of dry bones, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to proclaim a speech act. You are not done. You are loved by God. God has a hope and a future for you. And it is not something you can do. It is only something you can receive and be faithful to respond to. And in the meantime, we will wait together and we will prophesy to the breath to come and to give us life. Spirit of the living God,
image of the living God fall fresh. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on Come, Holy Spirit, I need Thee. Come, sweet Spirit, I pray. Come in Thy strength and Thy power. Come. In thine own gentle way. Oh God, whose breath defeats the chaos. Oh God, who speaks words over us like child, beloved, my possession, my treasure, my daughter, my son. Oh breath that we do not control but breath without which we do not have life. Come. 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 Come today for the Ezekiels who are sitting in this room or watching online or the Ezekiel who by your providence will pull up a podcast in months to come and it will be the moment that your breath speaks newness into their reality. Come, come. Come in your gentle way that brings life. Come speak words over us that create a new, holy, righteous worthy reality into who we are. Come, be the breath we breathe so that we can be a people called your church who speak, who speak words of goodness into each other's lives, Let, speak words into the world that bring, that bring hope and newness. We have no expectation Jesus and Paul both taught us we have no expectation that the principalities and powers will have a clue what we're doing or understand anything. And we recognize our lives will not always be easy and trial will come. But may those trials not 
hinder the work that you want to do in us and the redemptive work you want to do in this community and in the world. And so come this morning. Turn our dry bones into life. Turn our graves into gardens. Breathe on us today, we pray. And God, I especially pray... uh, Again, for those who are here who feel so isolated and broken and dry, we cannot control your spirit, but we can be available for your spirit to come and make things new. And so come, breathe life. And I pray for us as a church on this day that we celebrate the global church's birthday. May we, as an extension of that church, may we be a reflection of the life of the spirit. Empower us to bring life to this community and new life to those who are on the margins. Come, mold us. We need you. For we pray this in the name of the one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. Would you stand with us?